We're going to be in Matthew 18 as our core text this morning, and we're in our main message series on the life of Jesus, going through all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in chronological order, because we want to know this Jesus for ourselves, what the Word says, what He taught, what He did. We don't want to hear it secondhand from someone else. We want to see it for ourselves in His Word, the Bible. And last week, we talked about the incredible way Jesus loves us, and we heard Jesus describe the way His love pursues us like a shepherd leads leaving the 99 safe sheep to search for the one that is missing. This week, we're going to be dealing with a very, very touchy issue of how do you handle issues in the church among believers. And I always feel like the church exists in sort of a catch-22 situation because one of the most frequently repeated criticisms of the church by those outside the church is, oh, Christians, they're all a bunch of hypocrites. That's right. Okay, so you're all a bunch of hypocrites. So what do you do about that? Well, you would say, well, the solution to that is there has to be some type of accountability. There has to be some group or someone or a group of people or an agreement that, hey, when we're being hypocritical, we're going to call ourselves on it so we're not hypocritical outside the church. But the world also says if you ever call anybody, even in the church, on their sin, then you're being judgmental. So the church exists in this catch-22 where people think that the church is hypocrites, but if the church tries to help people in the church not be hypocrites, then the church is called judgmental. You see the problem with that. And the reason is the world would say, no, it's a very, very simple solution. Everybody just does what they think is right. To which we would say, well, that puts you back at square one where everyone's a hypocrite because everyone's just doing what they think is right. So you have this dichotomy, this conflict of two truths that can't seem to go together. So what's it supposed to actually look like in the church? That's what we're going to dive into this morning. And, and I'll just preface this by saying, if you've been in the church even a few years, then one of two things is probably true. You left your last church because there were issues, potentially with somebody, or you know somebody who left the church because they had issues with somebody in the church. Things got messy. How should that be handled? That's what we're going to talk about today. And before Jesus dives into this big subject of forgiveness, he's going to touch on what we're going to talk about today, which is the area we would call church discipline. We're going to find that he's going to talk about church discipline and flow right into talking about forgiveness because the two go hand in hand. The text will tell us that this is a model for dealing with someone in the church sinning against you. But I want to suggest it's also a model for dealing with sin in the church, period. And I say that because if the Lord were to bring someone's sin to your attention, if you were to find out that there's a gentleman in the church beating his wife, I don't believe the Lord would have us respond to that by, well, well Matthew 18 says, if your brother sins against you, and he's not sinning against me, he's sinning against his wife. So that's got nothing to do with me. I don't think the Lord would have us have that approach. I also remember what Paul said about dealing with sin in the church in 1 Corinthians 5. I believe it's on your outline. He says, For what have I as a believer to do with judging those who are outside, outside the church? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. So just to be clear, if you've never heard this verse Paul is explicitly saying we are to judge sin in the church. Not people, 
but sin. We're supposed to call sin, sin within the church. The attitude of uh, don't judge, don't judge is not supposed to exist in the church. There is a right way to judge. We're just used to hearing the word judgment always in a negative sense, as though it's the worst thing a person can be. The solution to hypocrisy in the church is godly judgment saying that's sin, that can't go on. You're a believer. This is the church. And then he says, but you don't judge the sin of those outside the church because they're outside the church. They're not expected to live like Christians if they're not Christians. But Christians, yeah, we should live like Christians. Jesus designed one of the protections against hypocrisy in the church to be church discipline. We are to judge each other. In other words, we're supposed to hold each other accountable to the standards of Jesus and his word. But sadly, the church is too often downright unwilling to deal with sin in its own house. We come up with a million excuses. We misapply the concept of grace, and what ends up happening is sin never gets dealt with in the church in any meaningful biblical way, and hypocrisy runs rampant in the church. So I believe that this is a model for dealing with sin in the church as well as a brother or sister in Christ sinning against you or I. Here's what Jesus says, beginning in Matthew 18, 15. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. So get this. It's very un-Canadian right here. Jesus says that the offended is to go to the offender to try and solve the issue, to have what may be termed a confrontation if need be. It's the responsibility of the offended to seek out the offender. Just pointing out, passive aggressive behavior is unbiblical. Jesus doesn't say, freeze them out till they notice and say, what's going on? You haven't spoken a word to me for three months. Well, I was only following Matthew 18 and waiting for you to notice. That's not what it says. It says the offended is to go to the offender. The responsibility is on the offended to go to the offender, explain the situation, explain how they believe they've been sinned against, and provide the opportunity for the offender to repent, to apologize, acknowledge the behavior as sin, and then turn away from that behavior. And notice that the goal is to keep the issue as private as possible. It doesn't say when your brother sins against you, post ye on Facebook. Don't you hate it when some people are hypocrites in the church? It doesn't say to do that. What do you mean? It doesn't say gather a group of friends, gossip about it, but then cover it up as a prayer request. This is what this person did to me. Will you pray? Please pray for me. Wait, there's some details I left out. He also said this and this and this and this and this. Pray for me. Seek the Lord for me. It doesn't say do that. You go straight to the person privately, privately to have the conversation. I believe some of that is just absolute practical wisdom because a one-on-one -on -one private discussion creates the highest odds of a person responding well to a difficult conversation. It just does. It's basic human behavior. As we love to point out, the goal is always reconciliation. That's the goal. Both people walking away in unity. Unity among the brethren in the church. However, as we always say, reconciliation is the end of an equation that reads repentance plus forgiveness equals reconciliation. You need those two parts, forgiveness and repentance in order for there to be reconciliation. We're gonna deal with forgiveness a little bit later on in today's study, but for now, this is dealing with the need of a brother or sister to repent, that first part of the equation, when they've wronged a fellow brother or sister in the church or they are in sin. So write this down. Step one, the offended is to go privately to the offender 
to point out the sin that has or is taking place. The offended is to go privately to the offender to point out the sin that has or is taking place. What Jesus is saying is is if you're bugged that someone sins against you, you've got two choices. Drop it, forget about it. If you can't do that, you go to them. So the only two options that he really provides. If I say I love you, but I won't talk with you in honesty when you trespass against me because I'm afraid you won't like me, my love is not real. It's flat out not real. I'm choosing the path of bitterness against you, gossip about you. I'm choosing what's easiest for me instead of what is best for you. If I see sin in your life that I know will bring destruction into your life, but I don't talk to you about it, I'm like a doctor who notices a lump on your body, but doesn't want to hurt your feelings by telling you you need surgery. Yeah, they're probably going to die in two years, but nobody likes to get that kind of news, so I didn't tell them. In Ephesians, Paul writes, Therefore, putting away lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Love without truth is hypocrisy. Love without truth is hypocrisy, but truth without love is brutality. If I say I love you, but I won't tell you the truth when I know you need to hear it, I'm a coward and I don't really love you. If I tell you the truth, but can't even be bothered to do it in a loving way, then I'm just being brutal towards you. What I'm doing is I'm really loving the truth even more than you. I have no concern about you in that moment at all. I'm just saying this is what you need to hear. Just deal with it. We all know preachers like that. We know churches like that where it's like, well, that's the way it is. You just got to freaking deal with it. You can still tell the truth in love. Tell the truth in love. That's what Paul encourages us to do. That means going to the person, and get this, this is a huge difference, going to the person with even greater concern for them than for you. That means when a person sins against you, you're going to them, but you've checked your heart and you've got your heart to the place where you've said, I want to deal with them because I can get over this, but I don't want them to go through life treating other people that way because it's going to poison their relationships. It's going to poison the way they lead others. It's going to poison their family. Or I know if they continue that behavior, it's going to bring disaster to their life. And I'm having a confrontation with them, not because I'm just incapable of forgetting something, but because they need to know this. They need to see this as sin. And if they can't, they're doomed to repeat this cycle of destruction in their life. If a person ever comes to you and you are the offender, please remember this. It's probably very difficult for them to do what they're doing. Do you realize that the average person doesn't look forward to incredibly awkward, potentially explosive confrontations? Nobody gets up and is like, man, who can I have a huge explosive argument with today? Nobody does that. So when they're coming to you, it's probably after much prayer and internal wrestling. Most likely they're only coming to you because they love Jesus and they know Jesus has asked them to do this. They probably don't want to do it. So if that person comes to you, you don't tear them apart by saying, you know, you call this being loving. You know, if you had phrased it differently or if you had done it this way or if you had had this approach, it would be fine. Stop it. Stop it. They're having a conversation with you they do not want to have about your sin because they care about you. Don't punish them for doing that. Don't ever punish a person for doing that because intentions matter. 
They matter. Proverbs 27, six says, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. They're coming to you because they care about you. And don't rebuff them by saying something like, you know, we're not close enough friends for you to talk to me about this. You don't have this position in my life. That's like telling the neighbor who knocks on your door to tell you your house is on fire. I appreciate your intentions here, but we don't really have a relationship. And you're knocking on my door at 3 a.m., talking to me about the state of my house. It's none of your business. We don't have a relationship. That's an intimate subject. This is my house. That's my roof you're talking about. (laughs) When the house is on fire, you shouldn't care who's knocking on your door. You should care that the house is on fire. It doesn't matter whom the Lord uses to bring your sin to your attention. What matters is your sin. So you don't get to dismiss your sin because you don't like the messenger or you don't like the way they delivered the message. In the latter years of King David's life, when his life is a shambles, he's coming back from battle one time. I love this story. And he's walking on a hill and on a parallel hill, there's this guy throwing rocks at him, just like heckling David. You're the worst king ever. You're terrible. And David's got like his crack troops him and they're like, you want us to go kill him? And David says, he says, no for the Lord may be using him to speak the truth. That's just such a profound example that in that moment, David understood, listen, it doesn't really matter who the messenger is. What matters is, are they right? Do you realize that if if an insane clown comes up to you and tells you the truth, that doesn't change the fact that it's the truth? The messenger has nothing to do with whether or not it's true. The question is just, is it true? And if it's true, it doesn't matter where the message comes from. It doesn't matter if it comes from the mouth of a donkey. If it's true, it's true. Don't BS yourself by tearing apart the messenger so that you don't have to deal with the message. What matters is, are they right? Is there a sin issue? Jesus goes on and says, if he hears you, if your brother listens to you and receives it, you've gained your brother. So best case scenario, they listen to you, they're sorry, they repent, and unity is restored. But, verse 16, if he will not hear, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. If you go to your brother or sister and they won't repent, they're not sorry, they're stubborn and argumentative, the next step is going to one or two seasoned members of the church. Please understand that. Not one or two of your close friends who are young believers and will back you even if you're completely wrong and a total idiot. These are seasoned believers who can offer some wisdom to you, okay? That's like having a confrontation with your coach and bringing your mom, you know? My mom says I'm the best hockey player on the team and you should be playing me. I have a witness right here. It's true. My son is the greatest who's ever played the game. It's like that. You have to get someone who's a little more impartial and has some wisdom, who has the respect of the church body. And you go and you explain the situation to them in private. Then the offended, once again, is to take the initiative to go have that conversation with an elder type person and then the offended is to get is to once again take the initiative to set up another meeting with the offender and say, can we meet again? I've asked Billy Bob to join us, although a guy named Billy Bob would probably never become an elder in a church. But I've asked him to join us, and he's just going to listen to us and do the best that he can to help us come to a place of reconciliation. 
Two or three witnesses fulfill the requirements of Old Testament law, which said that two or three witnesses were required to establish a matter. So understand what's going on here. This instruction by Jesus is cutting off the chance of this whole thing devolving into a he said, she said, he said, he said sort of interaction. It's saying, hey, if they won't receive you the first time, don't go back and have five meetings with them one-on-one. Bring another party into this. Otherwise, you're just gonna repeat the cycle. These one or two witnesses, mature people of the faith, will firstly be able to counsel the offended person as to whether or not their being offended is right and biblical. That's the first thing they're gonna do. They're gonna tell the offended person, yeah, that's right, that is sin, and it's understandable that you're offended. Or they're gonna say, you don't really have anything to be offended about. You should just let this go. If it is something worth being offended about, then their presence at the meeting will produce one of two results. It will make the offender understand the seriousness of the situation and cause them to recognize their need for repentance because they can't tell themselves, oh, you're just out to get me. You just don't like me. You're always criticizing me. When you have that impartial person who has the respect of the church and they say, no, they're right. You need to repent. This is wrong. It can shake them out of that and go, oh, okay, and suddenly cause them to see things as they are. Or those one or two witnesses will serve as witnesses to the offender's lack of repentance, which is gonna be really important if the next step of escalation unfolds. So if the offender refuses the second level meeting, things also go to step three. In other words, if you're a believer and you're asked to attend one of these meetings, you have a disagreement with another believer and they say, hey, I've asked a couple of elders from our church to meet with us and talk about this. You don't get to say, forget this, I'm not doing this. I'm not playing your game. That is absolutely the same thing as being unrepentant and things escalate to step three. This is really crucial, I really want us to get this. If you're a believer in any church and you're ever asked to do that, you have an obligation to do that. It's not an optional thing. Jesus is telling us, Jesus, how he wants these things handled in his church. So we don't get to go, I'm not doing that. Because these are instructions from Jesus himself. So refusing the meeting is the same as showing up and being unrepentant, because either way, you're unrepentant. So step two, write this down. I put the wrong numbers there. It should be one or two, actually. The offended is to go to one or two elder-type witnesses in the church, share the situation with them, and set up a second meeting with the offender themselves and the witnesses. I know it's long, but it needs to be in there. The offended is to go to one or two elder-type witnesses in the church, share the situation with them, and set up a second meeting with the offender themselves and the witnesses. As before, one would hope that this would result in the offender repenting. If it doesn't, you move on to step three, verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. Now this doesn't mean at church the next Sunday, I go, hey, while the baskets are coming around, I just wanna share a quick update with you about Susie Q and some terrible things she's been doing in her life. I've got all the details right here while you awkwardly sit there. It doesn't mean that. Here's what it means. It means the offended person, the witness or the witnesses who are really elder type people in the church would meet with the pastor or pastors of the church and explain the situation. Here's the situation. This is the issue. I was a witness to the meeting. They're completely unrepentant about it. And the witnesses being involved there means the pastor wouldn't have to worry. Am I just hearing one side of the story? Is this just somebody making wild accusations? The pastor or pastors are able to lean on the testimony of the witnesses who are godly, honorable men or women in the church. 
the pastor would then agree, yeah, this is sin, this is serious, and the pastor or pastors would then inform the offender, ideally in person, that they're under church discipline for refusing to repent for what is sin. Ultimately, they're under church discipline for stubbornness and their refusal to repent. And the pastor would say, hey, until you repent, you're no longer allowed to be a part of this church family. You're no longer allowed to be a part of the body. The moment you repent, you are welcome back into the church family and you will be completely restored. And we'll unpack this in a minute. Step three, the offender is to be confronted by the pastor or pastors of the church. The offender is to be confronted by the pastor or pastors of the church. Again, if that person repents at that time, then praise God, everything is good and they can be reconciled and in unity and they can be restored to the church. But Jesus says, but if he refuses to even hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. So if they refuse to hear the offended person, if they refuse to hear from an elder or elders of the church, if they refuse to hear from a pastor or pastors of the church, at that point, if they do not repent, they are to be excommunicated is the only word we can use here. Step four, the offender is to be excommunicated until they repent. So they are not allowed to attend any type of church gathering. And the men and women of the church are not to interact with them in any way. No phone calls, no emails, no Facebook comments or messages, no text messages, no visits, no meals, no coffees, nothing. And that is because the church is to be in unity speaking with one voice. Paul writes that when a person is unrepentant and has been excommunicated from the church, the church members are not even to eat with such a person. Paul, encouraging the church to judge sin within itself, tells the Corinthian church, as we read earlier, put away from yourselves the evil person. It is so critical when this happens that the church stand united and speak with one voice when it comes to discipline because it undermines the authority and power of the church when individuals go to that one person behind the back of the church and say to that person, I think you are unfairly treated. I'm still gonna be your friend and hang out with you. That's like dad giving a child a consequence and mom going behind his back and completely undermining that. Dad saying no candy for a week and mom feeding that child candy on the side. It completely undermines the authority of the leadership in the home. It undermines the authority of the leadership in the church. What that person is saying when they do that is I don't trust my brother or sister. I don't trust the elders of the church. I don't trust the church pastors. I don't trust that God has placed people in positions of leadership to lead his church. I think I'm better qualified than all of them to judge what is right. But my goodness, there is power when the whole church speaks with one voice and says, we love you and we want what's best for you more than we want what's easiest for us. We care about your spirit more than your temporary happiness. We care about what is right more than we care about the fact that people are gonna gossip about our church and say that we're horrible, judgmental people. We care about what is right. That's powerful. That's powerful. And you might be thinking, that seems really harsh and super judgmental. So what, why do all this? Well, the Apostle Paul actually ran into that type of thinking with the church in Corinth. I'm going to ask you, if you will, to flip to chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. And we'll begin in verse 1. Paul writes to this church in Corinth, and he says, It is actually reported 
that there's sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. Here's the deal. A man in the church was in a sexual relationship with his stepmother. No more detail needed. And this dude was a member of the church in Corinth. And Paul keeps writing in verse two and he says to the church, and you are puffed up like you're prideful and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. So weird response. The church isn't mourning or grieving over this man's sin. They're not confronting it in any way. It actually says they're proud of it. So why in the world would this church be proud of this man's sin? What do we mean by that? Well, they were proud of their tolerance. They were proud of their open-mindedness and their political correctness, their grace. Who am I to judge? In our day and age, this could easily happen in many churches because of the cancerous doctrine of misapplied grace. Many of you know believers who you could imagine saying that. You know, who are we to judge? I think what the situation just needs is grace, grace, and more grace, which is just code for we're going to do absolutely nothing about this under the term grace. That's what it means. That's what this church was doing. They weren't confronting it. They weren't dealing with it anyway. They're actually proud of it. Yeah, there is a guy sleeping with a stepmom who goes to our church because he knows our church is that loving of a place. There's that much grace in our church. They were really proud of it. Verse three, for I indeed as absent in body but present in spirit have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, underline all of verse five, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So this is the first purpose of excommunication. Write this down. The spiritual well-being of the unrepentant sinner. The first purpose of excommunication is the spiritual well-being of the unrepentant sinner. The strategy is this. If he wants his sin, let him have his sin. Let him have his fill. Let him taste and see that it's not good. Let him experience what sin will bring into his life until he's forced to recognize that he's chosen the path that will ultimately lead to death. And when he reaches that moment of realizing he's chosen the path that leads to death, Lord willing, he will repent and return to the fellowship where he'll be restored and welcomed with open arms. I highly recommend that on your own time you study the parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15. There are a lot of parallels between the model Jesus gives here for church discipline and the way the father deals with the son who wants to go off and enjoy his sin and his inheritance in the world. Like the father in that story who loved his son dearly but was willing to let him pursue his lusts in the world. That father who watched for his son every day in the distance, praying today would be the day his son returned to him. Like that, so is the church to be willing to turn the unrepentant brother or sister over to their sin, over to the world, watching and praying every day that they would repent and return. And when they do, welcoming them with open arms, celebrating that which was lost, now being found. While the excommunicated person is to no longer be considered part of the church fellowship or family, they are to be prayed for as you would pray for a non-believer, that they would return to the Lord. The church is to grieve over their unrepentance and pray for them faithfully. So the first purpose of excommunication is the spiritual well-being of the unrepentant 
sinner. Keeping them in the church and sending the message that what they're doing is okay is doing a horrible disservice to them. It's not loving them. It's encouraging them in the way of death. That is not grace. That is not love at all. Paul goes on and explains the second purpose of excommunication in verse six. He says, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? In the Bible, leaven, an ingredient used for baking bread, is always used as a picture for what? Leaven is always sin. Every single time, it's sin. So Paul points out that like leaven works its way through a whole loaf of bread as it bakes, so too does unchecked sin in a church spread and affect and infect the entire church. If sin is left unchecked in the church among its members, if sin is condoned, if it's approved of by the church's silence and indifference, because we all know sometimes saying nothing is really saying something. If sin is dismissed, because who are we to judge? The results can be catastrophic to the health of a church. Other believers, especially young believers, can be misled by the bad example, and the seriousness of sin is completely forgotten in a church. Also in 1 Corinthians, later on, Paul would write, do not be deceived, evil company corrupts good habits. That answers this one line of thinking, because there's always those in the church who say, hey, listen, If the guy's sleeping with his stepmom, what better place for him to be than the church where he can be ministered to and called to repentance? That's what Paul is talking about here when he says, don't be deceived. In the context of the church, evil company corrupts good habits. Don't be deceived. Doesn't work the other way around. If you put enough good people around someone, they're not going to just turn into a good person. It doesn't work that way. They have to want to change. They have to want to seek the Lord. They have to want to live righteously. And if they outright refuse to do that, even though they know it's wrong, Paul says, you're not going to help them by letting them stick around the church. You're just going to hurt everybody else in the church. The second purpose of excommunication is the spiritual well-being of the church body. The second purpose of excommunication is the spiritual well-being of the church body. Allowing an unrepentant sinner to stay in the church is bad for them, and it's bad for the church. So guess what? The man who is excommunicated after Paul wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, Corinthians 1, that man actually repented. It worked. He was kicked out of the fellowship, and he repented. And you can read about it in 2 Corinthians 7. Why did it work? Because the whole church took a strong stand with one voice in unity and said, this can't go on. This is not acceptable, and it worked. Now remember, as we move on to verse 18, we're going to move back to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to be in verse 18. And just remember that Jesus is still speaking about the context of church discipline, because the next three verses get pulled out of context all the time. And it's really important to notice and see he's speaking about church discipline, sin in the church. Verse 18, he says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, church, it's your job to bind sin. Sin is bound up in heaven. Therefore, you have authority to bind it up and condemn it in the church on earth. Righteousness, holiness, mercy, and forgiveness are released in heaven. They're everywhere in heaven. Therefore, you have the authority to release those things in the church on earth. 
Binding and loosing speak of the authority of the church given to us by Jesus in dealing with matters of sin. Where sin is flagrant, it's consistent and obnoxious. As seen in 1 Corinthians 5, the church has the right to bind sin up to stop it by excommunicating a person if need be. But the church also has the right from God to release forgiveness and grace and restoration where there is repentance. This is what Jesus is talking about when he teaches his disciples to pray, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what binding and loosing is. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying, hey, the things that are blessed in heaven, you have the authority to bless those things on earth. The things that are bound up and stopped and not permitted in heaven, you have the authority to bind those things on the earth, to do the will of heaven on the earth. If it's not in harmony with heaven, stop it. Bind it up in the church. That's what Jesus is saying. And when repentance occurs, loose the things that are loosed in heaven. Loose grace and mercy and forgiveness and restoration. Binding and loosing are not prayer cliches. It has nothing to do with saying, I lose financial blessing in my life. As though God is saying, I was waiting for you to say that. It doesn't work that way. It's not a prayer cliche. It has to do with church discipline and the will of heaven being done on the earth. Verse 19. Again, remember that Jesus is speaking specifically about church discipline. He says, again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Again, not saying grab a couple of homies and say, will you agree with me that there is a new car in my future? He's not talking about that. He's talking about church discipline. So I read even a few commentators who said this is all about the importance of group prayer and I can't really say that's wrong because prayer is wonderful. But I think that given the context of church discipline, this is really Jesus affirming to his disciples, the future leaders of the early church, that when they agree as a group to bind something up, when they agree to loose something in the church, it'll be done. The Lord does it when they get together and pray and seek the Lord and they say, yeah, this is not okay the way this person is living. That needs to be bound up. And they do that in unity. God's saying, yeah, I'm with you in that decision. I'm going to empower that decision. When an unrepentant sinner in the church is placed under church discipline because the leadership of the church collectively agrees about that, God is with them. The Holy Spirit goes to work convicting that person of their sin, working to lead them to repentance, while the church on earth does their part by having nothing to do with that person until they repent. Heaven and earth work together in that model of the church, in unity. Likewise, when the church agrees, this person has repented, and the church says, man, you're forgiven. God in heaven agrees with that and loses grace and forgiveness and healing to that person. God's on board with that too. This verse And the next verse that comes next seems to point to the importance of the church making serious decisions about church discipline together among a group of elders. In other words, following the instructions for church discipline laid out in this chapter. It seems to point out that this should be done among a group of godly people. It shouldn't be one guy, one rogue pastor saying, hey, if you disagree with my fundraising campaign, you're under church discipline. It's to protect against that sort of thing, saying there's supposed to be a process where multiple godly people are involved. 
When those things take place, God says he blesses and empowers the process. He blesses the church. Verse 20, again, remember the context. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in the midst of them. Did you notice that phrase two or three again? The last time we heard that specific phrase was in step two of the process, having two or three witnesses. And as I read this, I believe that the Lord is teaching his disciples, you and I, that when a believer get together with other seasoned wise believers, humbly, for the purpose of seeking the Lord's will, that God shows up in their midst and he blesses that conversation. He empowers that conversation. I experienced this very recently with a great couple in this church. I went to them and I said, hey, there's a situation. I consider you guys to be elder type in the church. Let me just share it with you. I want to hear from you if the Lord is giving you any insight onto the subject and we want to pray together. We prayed together. We talked for a couple of hours and God just moved in that. And he didn't move because I'm brilliant or amazing or anything. He moved because I was saying, God, I need some wisdom greater than I have. So I'm going to go to some other people that I believe you've gifted that way. And God just blesses that and he causes insight to flow out of that. And he causes a godly group thinking to develop because you just think differently when you're with a group of people. When you're on your own, you're like, Lord, I see the solution that you would smite them and it'll be done quick and painless for me. You don't think that way when you get around a group of believers. You get around two mature believers, you're never gonna say, I was just thinking maybe God could kill them. You would never say that. You'd never say that. Instead, even if you're lying through your teeth when you're with a group of believers, you'll say, you know, and it just grieves me for them that they're in this place of sin. You might start out lying through your teeth because you just want to sound gracious, but the most incredible thing happens when you get with a group of believers and they begin talking that way, seeking the will of the Lord, praying together. Man, your heart changes. Your heart becomes inclined toward the Lord. God just empowers that process when believers get together with godly motives and intentions. But this verse also speaks to the seriousness of that second meeting. This is the Lord saying, hey, offender, hey, offended, hey, one or two witnesses. When you get together, remember, I'm in your midst. So before you become nitpicky and argumentative and stubborn, remember, I'm in your midst. Witnesses, before you play favorites or try to rely on your own wisdom, remember, I'm in your midst. And you need to be conscious of that. You need to be asking the question, what does the Lord want to happen in this situation? Remember, I'm in your midst. Conduct yourselves accordingly. So I want to be upfront about some contemporary problems with this model of church discipline. Because it doesn't work as well as it did when it was written. At this time, there was the church in Jerusalem. There was the church in Corinth. So if you were excommunicated, you were completely cut off from all other believers in your city. There's no internet. There's no cell phones. The instruction has been given, don't eat with them. Don't speak with them. So that person comes up to a believer, and if that person's been excommunicated, and they're like, hey, how are you doing today? They'd say, hey, it's really good to see you, man. Here's what you need to know. If you've repented, I'd love to continue this conversation. If you haven't, I can't speak with you. It was that serious. It was that intense. The person was completely cut off from the church until they decided to repent. So think about how powerful that was as a form of church discipline. It was incredibly powerful. We don't have that same power today. You know what usually happens in churches today? Screw you guys. I'm going to the church across the street. 
And when I get there, I'm going to tell them all about how I was wounded and abused at my last church. And that church, out of their own ego, the same ego that the church in Corinth had, will say, I'm so sorry, we're not like that. We're a church that is gracious and loving, and that's all you're going to find here. So the plurality of churches in the modern age has really undermined the power that the church has in that way as a deterrent. They will. They just go to another church. So why do it? So why do it? In an age where if a church actually follows this model, the church could be sued for defamation of character. Because if they don't repent all the way, at some point, the pastor does have to stand up in front of the church and say, hey, many of you are probably wondering where this person is today. Here's what you need to know. There's a church discipline issue. You do not need to know the details. What I can tell you is that there are these trustworthy elders involved in the process. They've been involved in the process and they agree that this is the right course of action. So church, as painful as this may be, I'm gonna ask you to pray for this person. I'm gonna ask you not to have any type of contact with this person. That really happen if you follow the model faithfully. And it, hopefully it won't, but it really could happen here one day. And then after that happens, who knows? I'm sure social media blows up with that person talking about how horrible the church is and how judgmental they are um, while simultaneously complaining that we're all hypocrites. So why do all that? Well, most importantly, because Jesus told us to. And none of the things that I've just shared change the fact that this is what Jesus told us to do. His word is constant. His command is clear. And it's worth doing just so that we, his church, can stand before him with integrity and say, we did our best to follow the instructions you gave us in your word because we decided that the church being run the way you want it to be run was the most important thing. That's a good enough reason right there. But it also still communicates the right message to our congregation Namely, that sin is serious and being a disciple of Jesus is serious. And if we follow this model, it will at least help stop us from being hypocrites. And that's what Jesus has asked of us. Finally, it's still worth doing because a little leaven does still leaven the whole lump. We haven't evolved to the point where unchecked sin has no effect on us anymore. Bad morals do still corrupt good character. So this still matters. And just to share with you, the challenge in the modern church is you have a bunch of different people at a bunch of different places in their spiritual walk in any church. At this time in the church, if you attended the church, you were a member of the church. You were all in. You didn't get saved at church. You got saved outside of church in a conversation with a believer. When Paul writes to the Corinthians about spiritual gifts being used, he actually tells them, I don't know if you guys have thought about this, but the day may come where there may be an unbeliever in one of your meetings. They haven't even considered that, that that could happen. And what's happened over time is that evangelism has moved from being something we all do as individuals to something we expect the church to do as an organization. We expect the professionals to do that rather than us as individuals. And so that means you have people visiting a church, just checking it out. And it's obviously not okay to go to the person who's in their third week checking out the church and be like, hey, I've identified some sin in your life and you need to deal with it. That's problematic, so, so what do you do about that? So for us, one of the things we do is we make part of church membership, we make part of that covenant, the agreement that, yeah, I, I agree that if there's blatant sin in my life, I, I want somebody to call me out on it. And among the church members, I'm, I'm included in that. 
There's no exception for me. Unless you're the pastor, then nobody really gets to call me out. That's not part of it. It's like, it's all level. It's all the same thing. And we're not agreeing to it in dread. We're saying, if you see me leaving the path of life or the path of death, I want you to speak into my life. And I agree that I'm going to listen. We make that agreement. But we have to structure it that way so that the church leadership can know, okay, who who actually wants to live this way? Because we can't just go up to random people and be like, hey, I noticed you've been here a month now, so I thought it's probably time to deal with some habits I've observed in your life. So in our church, that's the way it happens. That's the context it happens in. And, and the reality is that this is something that if you don't want this to happen, it probably won't happen to you. If you want to hide and conceal your sin and have it, you'll probably be able to hide and conceal your sin and have it. If you want to live righteously and not get caught up in sin, that'll probably happen because you'll actually seek out that accountability. You'll be a part of a group. You'll have the kind of men and women in your life who will tell you the truth, who care enough about you to tell you the truth. So even today, I, I encourage you to just ask yourself that question. Am I welcoming the kind of people in my life who will tell me the truth? And how do I respond when they do it? Do I treat them like a friend or do I start treating them like an enemy as soon as they start telling me something I don't want to hear? It's a big question to think through. This is the last thing I'm going to say on the subject of church discipline. It's very difficult for pastors to talk about God's design for leadership and authority in the church because every pastor feels like when they begin to speak about that, everyone's like, oh, of course you're going to talk about that because you're the pastor. Everyone thinks a pastor has ulterior motives if they broach the topic, or that's how pastors feel. But I have an obligation to tell you what the Word of God says. God designed leadership structures for everything, for marriage, for parenting, for work, for government, for nature, the cosmos, and yes, even the church. The Bible makes it clear that the Lord gifts and calls specific people in the church to lead the church. He makes that clear that the church is not a communist party. It's a place where we're all equal under Christ, but he does call specific people to lead. Not everyone who teaches leads. There are people who are called to lead in other ways. And you'll find any time in the Old Testament when the people of Israel said, we don't need a leader, we'll take care of ourselves. Every time they do that in the Old Testament, it's an unmitigated disaster. It is a disaster because God didn't call all of them to lead. He didn't do it. And you'll find many times in churches, it's a disaster when the church has the government model where they said, oh, we don't have a leader. We just all run the church together and we vote on everything we're going to do from the color of the carpet to the size of the coffee cups. It creates a toxic culture in the church because the first time the pastor preaches something people don't want to hear, they go, I think we should change that guy. Let's have a vote. We'll move him on. And what happens is they have a church where everyone hears what they want to hear, walks out feeling happy, peppy, and bursting with love every Sunday, but they don't hear the truth. They don't hear the truth. The Bible even says in the last days, men will acquire for themselves teachers after their own lusts. In other words, they'll seek out teachers who will tell them what they want to hear. In the Old Testament, what you see among the prophets of God are men who taught what God wanted to have taught. Sometimes people listened, sometimes they didn't, but they said what God wanted them to say, and that was their goal. You never want to be in a church wherever you live in your whole life where the pastor is more afraid of the people of the church than he is of God. That's not a good situation. It's not a good situation. 
If you are going to be a member of any church body and really be a member of a church body, you're going to need to allow yourself to be led. You're going to have to trust that God really has called people to lead the church. And if you're going to follow what the Bible teaches, you're going to need to pray for those people. You're going to need to do everything you can to help them succeed at the task God has called them to. If you claim to be a member of any church but are unwilling to be led by the leaders of that church, then you're not really a member of that church. If you're saying, yeah, they're, they're, he's my pastor. Yeah, those are my elders. But, uh, you know, I don't want to hear anything from them. I don't want to be confronted by them. Yeah, I'm, I'm submitted to their leadership. We need to talk to you about something. It's none of your business. You're not submitted in any meaningful way at all. You're fooling yourself. If you claim to be a disciple of Jesus, but will not accept the accountability that Jesus describes in Matthew 18, if you reject that, you're not really living as a disciple of Jesus. This is not a, a church strategy. This is the instructions of Jesus, of how he wants things handled in his church. And if you say, no, I'm not gonna do that, you're, you're really rejecting a direct command from Jesus. Church discipline is a major, major way the Lord brings correction into our lives regarding very serious issues of sin. So I encourage every one of us to ask ourselves, what's more important to me, my pride or living as a disciple of Jesus? Because if any of us ever have to walk through this process of church discipline, that will really be the decision that it will come down to. You'll choose between your pride and your ego or being a disciple of Jesus. And I pray that if we ever have to walk through this, we would all repent at that first step. That's the ideal, right? Here's a blind spot. I, I didn't realize that you're right. I need to stop that. I need to repent. Praise God. That's one private conversation. Church doesn't need to know anything about it. And you're back on the road to health. My hope is that when we read this whole process, we would all say, I don't really want to get to step three. I'd rather just repent at step one. Now the subject shifts to forgiveness, and we're going to end with this. Verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? You see, the rabbis taught that the one who had been wronged was to forgive the offender up to three times, but the fourth time, that was it. That was as far as the grace of God goes, and that's as far as your grace needs to go. And they got the idea from the book of Amos in the Old Testament because in Amos chapters one and two, the Lord says to Israel over and over again, for three transgressions and for four, I will bring judgment against Israel, against Syria, against Samaria. In other words, I've let three things go, but the fourth time I'm gonna bring judgment. So the rabbis taught, clearly, this is a forever rule. The Lord will let three sins go, but the fourth one, he'll destroy you for it. So Peter felt noble and generous in asking, should I forgive him? seven times? I'll double it and add one. I am so gracious, so great in the kingdom. I'm Peter. Verse 22, Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. So Peter gets responded to after throwing out the number seven by Jesus throwing out the number 490, which is an interesting number. Because it's the exact number of years that Israel walks in rebellion against the Lord before he allows Israel to be conquered by other nations and taken off in captivity to Babylon for 70 years. 
The Lord put up with Israel's sin and rebellion for 490 years. And then even when he brought judgment upon Israel, it wasn't to punish them, but to restore them. It was to lead them to the place of repentance so that they could get spiritually healthy again. And when that process, when that season of repentance was complete, the Lord totally restored Israel back into their land and blessed them. So in his answer, Jesus is setting Peter and the disciples straight. He's saying, oh, the Lord forgives far, far more than three times. Do you remember the 490 years when Israel rebelled against the Lord? Peter throws out the number seven. Jesus throws out the number 490, to which you might say, I can't keep track of a number that big. That's the point. That's the point. Write this down. Jesus instructs us to forgive without any type of limitation. Jesus instructs us to forgive without any type of limitation. We're not permitted to keep score when it comes to forgiveness. We are to forgive over and over and over and over again. Do you remember the equation we mentioned earlier in our study? The goal is restoration, but restoration happens when you have repentance plus forgiveness. After 490 years of rebellion, the Lord excommunicated Israel from their land. He let them feel the full effects of their rebellion. You want to choose the road that leads to death? See where it takes you. It'll take you all the way to Babylon. That ultimately led Israel to the place of repentance. And when they reached that place of repentance, they found a God of forgiveness, and it resulted in restoration. Whether you are the offended or the offender, you have an obligation to fulfill your part of that equation. If you're the offended, you must forgive. If you are the offender, you must repent. Whether or not the other person does their part of the equation has nothing to do with our obligation to fulfill our part of the equation. Whether or not they fulfill their part will determine whether or not there can be restoration. But they're never tied together. It's never, I'll forgive if you repent, or I'll repent if I know you'll forgive. We got nothing to do with each other. We have an obligation to do our part. Understanding this is so important. There cannot be restoration without forgiveness and repentance. Here, here's why this is so important, because people can take this the wrong way. And people think when you're wronged by someone or abused by someone, that forgiveness means restoration. They're different things. If someone is abusing you, you have an obligation to forgive them. But if they won't repentant, if they won't stop, if they won't repent, if they won't stop, there cannot be restoration. You can forgive them, but forgiving them doesn't mean that you have to go back and get abused again. That's restoration going back and beginning again. So if you're being abused and you can forgive them, if they won't repent, there can't be restoration. You're not obligated to restoration. You're obligated to do your half of the equation. And if they do their half, then there can be restoration. If you're the offender and you think you've repented and you're thinking, great, that person has to forgive me because I've repented. I can't wait to tell them that. You don't get to tell them that. The Holy Spirit gets to tell them that. Part of genuine repentance is expecting nothing in return for your repentance from the other person. And genuine repentance never demands anything from the other person. True repentance stands on its own. It's not conditional. We're to be known as a people who forgive over and over and over. And we're to be known as a people who walk and live in forgiveness, free from bitterness, not keeping score. 
It wasn't my plan to commit this much of the study to the subject of church discipline, but I hope that you see how important it is to get it right and to understand it. You don't want to get it wrong because there can be a lot of abuses if that happens. So we wanted to make sure we took the time to get it right. And Jesus has just started to talk about the subject of forgiveness. Uh, Next week, our study from Jesus is really going to blow open this conversation of forgiveness. It's going to be radical. It's going to be life-changing. I want to encourage you not to miss it because right now, every single person is struggling with forgiving someone or in the future, you will struggle with forgiving someone. That's an inevitability. What Jesus is going to share in his word next week, what he's going to say to us is going to change the way you approach being wronged and the issue of forgiveness for the rest of your life. I really believe that. So don't miss it. Let's go ahead and pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? It's not a, not a feely message this morning, not an emotional message this morning, but a, a very practical and important message. And I think we have to begin by not thinking of all the people we know who need to do this stuff correctly. I think we need to begin by looking at ourselves and asking the question, am I prepared to do this the right way? When I'm offended... Am I prepared to love the other person enough to deal with it? When I see sin destroying someone's life, do I care enough about them to do what Jesus asked us to do as the church, in the church? Or am I going to care about myself more and just avoid the potential awkwardness? If I'm in sin or if I have a blind spot and I sit here and I say, Lord, would you just shine a light on these things in my life? Do I really mean it? If the Lord chooses to shine a light on it by sending someone to point it out to me, am am I really prepared to welcome that? Or am I ready to, to dig my heels in and be argumentative and fight them on it and be stubborn and pick apart the messenger and pick apart their message? Or do I care more about walking with Jesus than I do about my ego, my pride, anything? If God sent a kid to point something out to me that I needed to hear, would I hear it? Would I repent or would I just dig in my heels? Those are big questions to think through. And then maybe there's situations that you're dealing with in your life right now where this equation is just providing some clarity right now that it's repentance plus forgiveness that equals restoration. If you're withholding your part until they do their part, you need to let that go today. You need to do your part regardless of whether or not they do theirs. Maybe you've been wondering why why things aren't working out in a situation where you've applied forgiveness. And maybe the Lord is saying, well, it's it's because they're not repentant, and so there can't be restoration yet. You have to give the Holy Spirit some room to work on them so that that can happen. If you've been wronged, you need to forgive. If you've been wrong. You need to repent. It's got nothing to do with whether or not the other person does their part. It has to do with being right before the Lord. If there's a situation where that applies to, I I know it's in your mind right now. It's just the way the brain works. I want to encourage you, don't get emotional now and then walk out and do nothing. Do what you need to do. In this coming time, if there's a person you need to forgive, you forgive them. You let it go. We'll talk about that more next week. And if there's someone you need to go to and apologize to, you do it. You repent before them. Do what you need to do to be right with Jesus. It's more important than anything.
Father, I pray that you would help us to be sensitive to your spirit and not to dismiss what you would illuminate in our lives. God, help us to be honest enough to realize as well, if you send someone to point something out, it's only after you've been trying to point it out through your Holy Spirit. And it means that we haven't been doing a great job listening. And you've had to up the ante just to get through to us. Lord, if we're stubborn this morning, God, would you just break us of that? Would you give us soft, tender hearts to be open to your spirit, Lord, to hear you? And if you need to send someone, Lord, then, then send someone. Send someone. We'd rather know. We'd rather be right with you. We'd rather be free. We'd rather be on the road that leads to life. Whatever it takes for that to happen, help us to be humble. Help us to be humble, Jesus. I pray, Lord, through your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us right now. If there's anything we need to do, just illuminate it, Jesus. We're open to you this morning. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.